Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together Bruce and I have written over three dozen cookbooks, including the Essential Air Fryer Cookbook, which is out right now. You can get it anywhere. It is the only air fryer cookbook sized for every size of air fryer on the market. So the recipes are sized out for big, medium, and large air fryers. And we are the authors of Instant Pop Bible Copycat Recipes, How to Make Your Favorites from Various Restaurants Across North America in an Instant Pop-Up. We're not talking about any of that today. We're going to talk about food scandals. We're going to talk about <laughs> buttercream. We're going to talk about our one-minute cooking tip and what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. I love these kind of episodes with food scandals and food. We did one on food <laughs> thefts that was really hysterical. One of my favorites, Krispy Kreme donuts. I do like them once in a while, but... Five years ago. I, I don't know. I, I know. I'm going to turn in my Southern card, but I am not a fan of the Krispy Kreme. They were cream. just very light. I like they're, how light they're they too are. sweet for me. I will confess to you. And I will also confess to you, and now you're all going to unfriend me, and we're going to go through <laughs> cancel culture, and you're going to cancel me and all that stuff. I prefer cake donuts oh, to you're, yeast donuts. You're just wrong. So there you go. Wrong. I can't help myself. <laughs> prefer the cake donut because it's a better dipper. Fair. It's a better dipper. Yeah, but when coffee. I fill them, when I go to fill, you can't fill a cake. Donut. No, I don't want you to fill it. I want to dip <laughs> it in my coffee. I don't like filled donuts anyway. They're disgusting. So I don't like no. what's in them because I don't know what comes out. When I bite into that and it gushes out on my hand, I look at it and I think, what industrial factory in what third world country made that and shipped it across the world? And I am now consuming it. Anyway. Well, people love Krispy Kreme donuts. They do. And especially in the UK, they love them. And so this one Krispy Kreme store back in the UK in 2015 decided they were going to start a frequent buyer program. And that's a great idea. Get people to buy more donuts. Mark, why did it fail? Well, they failed because it was in the UK. So they called it the Krispy Kreme Club and they named it the KKK. <laughs> and that just <laughs> failed not so well. It's really bad. There's Krispy a, Kreme Club. There's a, there's a Simpsons reference there with with Krusty, but, um, <laughs> with the KKK. But it's it was really not a smart thing. And, you know, the thing that amazes me about this kind of scandal, scandals like this, is Krispy Kreme undoubtedly paid publicity firms and advertising firms hundreds of thousands of dollars for these campaigns and no one saw that it's, well it, it was in the uk if it was mind. in the u.s maybe somebody would have it, maybe so but it blows my mind that no one saw it okay our second food scandal is with the beloved Ina Garten. And, and we have beloved. to say that we do love her too. So though this is a scandal that she was a part of, it's not a, as big as a Paula Deen scandal. It's not as terrifying <laughs> as all of that. No, it, it was probably still... just a whole bunch of calendar mistakes. Listen, to get to Ina Garten, you have to go through layers of people. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you my Phil story in a minute. <laughs> um, our Dr. Phil story. Um, you have to go through Was that a scandal? No, but it was weird. Um, you have to go through layers of people to get to these people. Yeah. And this was probably a layering problem. So a lot of people, Make-A-Wish Foundation, reached out to her. So to get to her, of course, they had to go through agents and managers and lawyers. And they had a six-year-old boy who had leukemia. His Make-A-Wish was that he wanted to cook with her. And she was out on book tour. And the word came back that, no, she turned him down. And maybe she didn't even get to do it herself. My maybe one just, of her people turned him My hunch is she never even saw So him. a year later, they tried again. This little boy was still in treatment. They reached out again. Nope. They were told she was too busy. 
And so what happened is the media laid into the Food Network star so bad that she had to do damage control. And maybe this was the first time she even heard about this it. This is my guess. So she invited the boy on her show to cook with her, and he turned her down. And instead, he went swimming with the dolphins. <laughs> oh, I would rather go swimming with the dolphins, too. <laughs> Frankly, even as a food professional, and I like Ina Bagarton, but I would still rather go swimming with the dolphins than cook with Ina Bagarton. Yeah, listen, this is probably, again, a problem of layering. Years and years ago, Bruce and I wrote Dr. Phil's cookbook, and it was crashed, which means in the publishing industry that there's a about a minute and a half in which the book has to be written, produced, published, printed, brought out, marketed. I mean, they're trying to get this thing out because, of course, he's a celebrity and he started his weight loss thing. And, well, he needs a cookbook and it needs to happen very fast because that's what's happening on his show. So we had about six weeks to write this book. And um, there were all kinds of weird things about writing the recipes. We developed the recipes. He had a full-time writer who was writing the intro and all that. But we were developing the recipes for the book. Okay, fine fine enough. But at one point I said, you know, it would help us if we knew I contacted the writer for Phil and I said, it would be helpful if we knew some of the foods that Phil loved, like apples or chicken. I said, I don't know. When he's writing in his limo, just have him say, and this is back in the days of like blackberries, seriously, generation one. I'm like, just, just type into his blackberry apples and chicken and that kind of thing. Because we were so naive that we actually thought that it mattered that the recipes in the book reflected his personal I taste. Know, we were idealistic. <laughs> so anyway, the writer was said to me, you know, are you kidding me? Like, do we have to do this? And I was like, yeah, please ask. <laughs> she wasn't as naive. So she, you know, asked, it's the whole chain. She asked the manager who asked the agent who asked the lawyer who asked the handler who asked the publicist <laughs> who asked Phil who, asked, who told the publicist who told the handler who told the lawyer who told the manager who told the agent. I mean, it's like that. Like, this game of telephone and the answer that came back was not worth my time and so it was not worthy of his time but the problem with that and this is where my naivete was was really bad is the problem with that is it slowed us down on the book by two weeks and we had six weeks to come up with all the recipes for this book so we had wasted two weeks getting that answer up the chain to fill and it was tough i mean it really it was pushing it through layers and layers and layers to get it up yeah. the chain what did he care he, the book was just a brand extension for him, and it didn't have to reflect his taste. So we, unfortunately, had only four weeks to write the book, right. and it reflected our taste. And I'm sure that this food scandal with Anna Garten was probably the same yeah. thing. I'm sure. I don't know 100%. Yeah. But my guess is a layering problem. And really pushing through those layers towards celebrities is really, really hard. It's it uh, really hard. I let's say but before we get to our, our third big food scandal, I should say that Bruce and I were lucky enough to cook dinner for Bette Midler once. Once. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of an amazing thing. She won us in an auction from a homeless charity in New York City. We mm -hmm. were auctioned off as, you know, cook with Bruce and Mark. She bid. She won. Um, and we cooked dinner for Bette Midler. Well, with her. She made. Yeah. She and I made gnocchi and we, we made did. sauces together. It was and then crazy. I helped her after she got locked in the bathroom. <laughs> It wasn't her apartment, so she clearly didn't yeah, know how we the were, lock worked. There were eight people involved, <laughs> and she was just one of the eight with us. But it, the, the point is that um, uh, Bette Midler was really nice enough to give us a quote on our next book. And the reason that happened is because that night, essentially, she essentially gave us her contact number. And we, we knew who her, who her personal assistant was to call. I didn't have to go through 18 layers. I literally texted her personal assistant, yeah. who texted me right back and said, yeah. she's right here. And I asked her she would love to. 
Uh, yeah. So again, the, you, you know, that was that was missing the layers because if we'd had to come up through management and lawyers <laughs> and agents and handlers and publicists and all that, we would have never ever gotten to Ms. No, we never would have gotten. Okay. To her. So our third big food scandal <laughs> has to do with Fanta soda, and you may know this. First of all, you may know that it's really not Fanta soda; it's Fanta. Fanta. You may not know that it's Fanta, but it is Fanta, despite in the fact that in the United States we've always said Fanta. It was actually a German drink, and it was a drink for what? Well, it was made under the Nazi regime. Mm. So we could say it was a Nazi drink. I mean, at least it started that way. See, here's what happened. Coca-Cola could not send their secret syrup to Germany. You know, they made it all in the U.S., mm -hmm. and they couldn't send the syrup to Germany during World War II. Right. So the German Coca-Cola headquarters had to create a new formula with local ingredients, and they called me, it Fanta. Let me, Fanta. Fanta. Uh, let me just say, it was Max Kite, who was the, Max Kite was the uh, CEO of the German division of Coca-Cola. Uh, I should tell you, in case you don't know, that Coca-Cola sponsored the 1936 Berlin Olympics, and they're are pictures of the Coca-Cola symbol with the swastika on banners mm. at those Olympics. So things are not as easy as one might think. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this Fanta was developed as a way for there to be a German Coca-Cola, as it were. Uh, most people who have researched this, it's in Atlas Obscura and other places, say that it was, of course, during the war, and the ingredients used were very, very inferior. So we're talking colas made out of rotted apples, mm. colas made out of rotted... It was war. It was war. It was war. My favorite is rotted mixed produce, <laughs> which... <laughs> One can only imagine oh, what that was. Oh. Yum, it's celery so soda. You have to decide on yourself. And Fanta is still a strong a brand. Fanta, say it right. Fanta. It's a strong Fanta. brand worldwide. Most people don't even know about its scandalous start. And now that you know, you have to decide yourself if that bothers you. Yeah, I don't know that that's so much a scandal. I mean, after all, Coca-Cola... No, it's a history. It's um, supported the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And they, we still drink Diet Coke. And so. I still drink Coca-Cola. So I don't know that it's a scandal, but it is part of the history of how Fanta came about. Fanta. Fanta. Fanta, Fanta came about. And finally, our last food s uh, scandal has to do with Burger King. And we're back in the UK. Oh, another UK problem. They're having started. so many problems. I, I so don't think they have good publicists there. Burger King in the UK has a great business practice. They hire a lot of women in their kitchens. And it's a good thing because in the UK, only 20% of professional chefs are female. So they make it a point of hiring a lot of women cooking in the kitchen. And how did they announce that they're industry leaders in this area? Well, Mark? apparently they brought out a tweet announcing their success at getting a 20% share of female chefs with a tweet that said, women belong in the kitchen. <laughs> See, I just don't I just don't think that there are any good publicists in the UK and I just don't think there are any good marketers in the UK. Well there have to be because the UK is a marketing powerhouse, but still nonetheless, I just don't think anybody's really paying attention and women belong in the kitchen. It would not be what I would tweet out about congratulating myself on hiring a lot of women. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay. Oh my. 
Before we get to segment two, let us ask you please to subscribe to this podcast. Uh, we know that a great percentage of our listeners come on Apple Podcasts. If you could drop down to the bottom and give this podcast a rating or even a comment, even as much as nice podcast, that would be fabulous. Thank you very much for doing that work. Otherwise, subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Who would want to of Cooking with Bruce and Mark? Up next, segment two, our one-minute cooking tip. Before you add wine to a stew or a soup, boil it in a small saucepan and reduce it by half to three-quarters of its original volume to concentrate its flavor. I don't think a lot of people know this. This is a chef trick for sure. And I think people, of course, it's just easier, of course, to add the wine straight to the beef stew or the white wine straight to the chicken stew. But Honestly, if your proper sous, as they say in the industry, if your sous has reduced that wine, your sous chef, you the someone working under you, has reduced that wine, then you add it to that braise and it is infinitely better, infinitely better. And you could do this ahead of time. If you know over the next three weeks you're mm. going to be making some dinner parties and doing some big stews, you could take three or four bottles and doesn't have to be super expensive. You can get no, no, nine, no. eight, seven dollar wine. No, no. Boil them down just to like a cup or two, and you'll have a super concentrated wine, and you can add that. Oh, it'll help your flavor. You can keep it in the fridge then, and it'll last yeah, a couple in weeks. In fact, you can even do this. Put it in ice cube trays sure. and freeze it. Great. And now it's frozen in the freezer. At any moment, you can drop those into a stew. They will infinitely rich up that stew. You can also drop them into a glass and, um, you know, pour iced tea over them. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, up next, segment three. We are going to talk all about buttercream. We are. And in fact, okay, I'm going to interview you as if you were the fabulous cookbook author, Bruce Weinstein, <laughs> and I am your interviewee. Now, we I, we should tell you that what we're talking about here when we talk about buttercream is uh, stuff that you frost a cake with, or if you're from the South, you ass a cake with it. it. Yes, you ass it. but Or you frost it, either one. But um, we're talking about what you put on a cake. <laughs> there are other kinds of buttercreams that are actually fillings, and we can talk about that in a minute. So tell, talk to me about the simplest kind of buttercream out there. Well, I, I refer to this, and Mark and I refer in our books as like just an American-style buttercream. It is the most basic. It's where you beat butter and powdered sugar together until it's spreadable, and then you add some flavoring, whether it's vanilla extract or whatever extract root you beer. want. Root beer. Root beer extract. Oh, root beer buttercream. <laughs> and it's a very, it's not terribly Sounds smooth. Delicious. It has a grainy, the powdered sugar never gets smooth, 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 so it always has sort of a grainy quality to it, but it's what most people use. It's kind of like the equivalent of what comes it. out of the can you when can you get open it. Smooth. You know, it is. It's the equivalent of what comes out of a can. Now, do you just, I also want to add here, those cans of buttercream that you have, the paint cans of icing that you buy. Mm. Buy one next time you're in the store. Lift the lid up. They used to, I don't know if they still do, have spoons, little plastic spoons on the inside gross, of the lid because gross. people eat them. Take them to movie theaters and eat a can of icing. Gross. <laughs> okay, so I am. I, uh, you probably know that I'm the writer in our team and Bruce is the chef. And I have to tell you that before I became heavily involved in this cookbook career and writing three dozen cookbooks, uh, this is the only kind of buttercream I knew about. I, I'm sure I had others, but I didn't know there were others. And it is what most people do because the next two kinds we're going to talk 
talk about are so labor intensive and they are very pastry chefy. Okay, so where shall we go next in terms of pastry chef? What is the next most complicated kind of butter? Let's talk about the French buttercreams. And this oh. is this is I will thank Rose Levy Berenbaum because it was in her cake bible that I first really discovered what she calls her neoclassic buttercream. And it's where you take egg yolks and you beat egg yolks with a hot sugar syrup till you're getting almost in some weird way a zabayon, but it's okay, not a zabayon. So back up. So what do you do with the sugar? So you mix you melt the sugar with a tiny bit of corn syrup in a nonstick skillet so that it all comes out quickly and just just get it to a big boil because by the time it gets there the amount of sugar it's at the right temperature which i think is supposed to be softball stage you don't even have to measure the temperature and then you have egg yolks only in a stand mixer and you beat the sugar syrup into the egg yolks in a slow slow stream i'm Mm -hmm. sure right and then you keep beating until it doubles in volume and you you do have almost a zabayon kind of thing going on And then you beat that until it is just cool down to room temperature, and then you take about. And how do you how do you know that? Because I always watch you do this. I use a laser thermometer, and I just shine it right into my mixer. But you're always putting your hands on the bottom of the bowl. I do. I want to make sure the bowl's still not hot. And sometimes I cheat because I have a metal mixing bowl on my stand mixer, and I take an ice cube and I rub it around the outside. Helps cool it down faster. Then you have to have room temperature butter, and it must be room temperature, and you must make sure that that egg yolk mixture is cooled. If it's hot, it'll melt your butter. If it's room temperature, then you start throwing in the butter a tablespoon at a time. Usually I use a pound. I don't it's about. It's four sticks of butter for a cake. Whoa. And then you just beat that in, and that mixture can hold about a quarter cup of extra liquid as a flavoring. Creme de cassis is a beautiful flavoring to add. Kahlua is a beautiful flavoring to add. Always a little bit of um, salt. A pinch of salt is good. A little bit of vanilla. You could put a quarter cup of lemon juice. Whatever you want to flavor it with. That's probably the next most complicated. And I do love it. But you have to make sure your temperatures are right or it will not be smooth and it will be lumpy. And I, I should say, uh, don't in terms of storage, this one has a little bit of a storage problem. Well, right? it firms up in the fridge. It gets really hard. So... You and want to, don't you have to essentially keep it in the fridge for a while? I mean, if you if you, let's say you're going to make a cake in the morning with this fancy fancy egg yolk buttercream, and then you're going to take it somewhere. Yeah. I mean, you almost frost, have to. Yeah, yeah. yeah, frost the cake right away, then keep the cake in the fridge. But you want that cake out at room temperature for a minimum of three hours to soften that even down to the middle before you serve it. Yeah, it's really weird because those internal layers of the frosting won't won't get. Soft uh, again. Soft as quickly. It takes hours and hours. And you know how butter is in the refrigerator. So imagine now this buttercream that cuts like a stick of butter out of the refrigerator, <laughs> and you're not going to get a good right. slice out of your cake. Right. So the, the, this is complicated, but that complication of that kind of buttercream pales in comparison to the final kind. So why don't you talk to us about what we call the final kind? Well, this is my favorite. You start with a Swiss meringue, but actually sometimes I call it Italian buttercream because you turn that Swiss meringue into an Italian meringue. So here's what happens. You put your your egg whites into a stand mixer and you just beat them with some salt. So these are whites, not just the whites, no yolks, not yolks now. So egg whites go into the stand mixer and you beat them until you have just a meringue, right? And you start beating a little sugar into that. And the old-fashioned French meringue, which is just beaten egg whites with sugar. Now a Swiss meringue that would be cooked over 
um, a double boiler. So now I'm going to actually turn that French meringue into a Swiss meringue by beating a cooked sugar syrup, which is like an Italian meringue. So it's a whole complication of different meringues. So we have our beaten egg whites with sugar meringue. Now I'm going to go to my pot and I'm going to cook my sugar syrup to the softball stage, 240 okay. degrees, and I'm going to slowly drizzle that in. And I'm going Which to, is similar to what we did with the the uh, the neoclassical buttercream or the French buttercream, but, but that was with yolks. Now I'm using only whites. Right. And I'm going to beat that. Now here's where temperature is even more important. You beat that until it's room temp, and it'll take longer to get to room temp than the yolks did because you're going to have more volume here. Because the egg whites. Because the egg whites. Then once it's at room temp, again, we're going to beat in a pound of butter, mm -hmm. and then we're going to beat in some of our flavoring. Why I like this one better is it's lighter, it's creamier, it's not as heavy from the yolks. All the air from the meringue gives it a lightness that is so lovely and it's able to pipe it so well. And actually, when we get done recording this episode, I'm going to be making one to bring to friends tonight. And this is also one, while you should store it in the fridge, that doesn't need quite as long out of the fridge before it's cut off. No, it, it, it actually, because of the meringue, it stays softer. It doesn't get quite as hard, which is kind of why I like it too. Yeah, right. It's not, I mean, really that, that middle one, which we call the French buttercream, which um, uh, Rose Levy Berenbaum calls the neoclassical buttercream, it really takes a while out of the fridge because it's like butter. It has yeah. to come back up to where it's soft. This kind of, because there's all that beet meringue in it, mm -hmm. the butter doesn't have as hard, as, good, as good a chance to solidify <laughs> up. Um, they, these are three different kinds of buttercreams. They are amazing. There are other kinds of buttercreams like mousse, mousseline cream. Creme mousseline, oh, where you, yeah. you make a pastry cream like a vanilla custard cream and then you know the kind you stuff into donuts and it's in the bottom of fruit tarts and you beat butter into that yeah <laughs> creme that's, mousseline that's creme mousseline but creme mousseline doesn't go on the outside of a cake well maybe it should but it doesn't <laughs> generally go on the outside it goes on the inside of a cake uh -huh. like a frisier it goes inside that cake okay up next segment four What's making us happy in food this week? Okay, so I'm going to let you go first. Okay, so there are two things that are making me happy, and there are two things that don't go together, but unfortunately they did. Bari dates make me very happy. Mm. They're the little soft, mm. caramelly, chewy dates, and I mm. bought a beautiful five-kilo box from a California farm, and I put them in the back fridge where we keep them. I'll move them to the freezer eventually, but I love those. I also, what makes me happy is my homemade chili oil, which you have heard me talk about so many times. There's the video of me making it. My bottle of chili oil spilled and it poured all over my box of Bari dates. So my two favorite things did not make me happy when they joined up, but actually they're not terrible together. I just don't know what I'm going to do with them. <laughs> so now we have chili oil dates in here. If you don't know this, by the way, it uh, it is currently Ramadan, and um, these date farms in California run Ramadan specials, and you can get five and ten kilo boxes of dates. And I know that sounds insane for insane prices, and I know it sounds insane to have that many dates, but they store in the freezer, and oh my gosh, Bari dates. They're these little round sugar bombs, and when they're in the freezer, they taste just like caramels when they come out. And we stored them in the freezer all year as a snack mm -hmm. and get it every year on Ramadan and special. And with a little chili oil, they're not terrible. Well, pay me not. So <laughs> what's made me happy in food this week 
is, uh, well, here's what's making me happy. And it's kind of weird, and you're going to have to go with me on this one, and this is very foodie-ish. But Bruce's aunt came last weekend, and Bruce's aunt is kosher, and she keeps a kosher home. So we have to go to the Crown, which is a kosher market in near as well, about an hour away from us. And we have to buy our meat there. Um, she will eat off our dishes and out of our pots, but we do buy kosher stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Bruce made her a Chinese feast, and he made slippery red oil dumplings. You probably know what these are. These are those fabulous dumplings covered in chili oil and cilantro. Bruce puts peanuts on them. They're wonderful Szechuan treat. And because his aunt can't eat pork, these were made with ground veal. And I actually like them better. <laughs> they weren't as sweet. The pork is a much sweeter meat, and when I make them with pork, it's a completely different thing. And the it veal is. is just as much fat. It was a fatty cut of veal yeah, that I bought. Yeah. But it was not as sweet. It was a much more savory dish. It was crazy. Ground, I think from now on, Mark's getting all my Chinese dumplings with veal. A ground veal in slippery red oil dumplings. It was a delicious alternative, and not as Bruce says, not nearly so sweet. So that's our podcast, Kumi Bruce and Mark. Thanks for being a part of it this week. We really appreciate your support. We hope that you enjoy this podcast, and we hope that we've made you laugh somewhere through it. And please, we tell you every week what makes us happy with food. Tell us what's making you happy with food. Go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, and share what's making you happy with food this week. And maybe we'll even make it, and we can talk about it. So see you next time. Cooking with Bruce and Mark.